We are the paradoxical ape. Bipedal, naked, large-brained. Long the master of fire, tools, and language, but still trying to understand ourselves. Aware that death is inevitable, yet filled with optimism. We grow up slowly. We hand down knowledge. We empathize and deceive. We shape the future from our shared understanding of the past. Carta brings together experts from diverse disciplines to exchange insights on who we are and how we got here. An exploration made possible by the generosity of humans like you. very much for that introduction um, and thanks to the organizers for putting together such an interesting symposium. We're very happy to share some of our data today. Today I'm going to talk about a genetic mechanism that we think is important for endurance exercise and I am um, Ellen Breen from the University of California. Okay so DNA sequence analysis indicates that we are very similar to the great apes. In fact, we are more closer to the bonobos and the chimpanzees than we are to the gorillas and the orangutans. At the amino acid level, there's less than 1% difference in amino acids between us and these other species. So striding bipedalism is a unique feature of hominids that is thought to have appeared about seven to six million years ago. But fossil evidence suggests that endurance running is a capacity that is unique to the genus Homo. And this occurred much later, about 2 million years ago. So there's still a lot of interest and much to be learned on how this transition came about. There are many anatomical changes that allow humans to endurance run or to run. Also about the same time, about 2 million years ago, we began to use stone tools and hand axes, but there were no projectile weapons at this time. Diets had changed and humans consumed meat. So there was hunting, possibly humans were running after their prey. There are also changes that allowed us to lose heat, such as the development of sweat glands and hair loss. So in 1996, um, Dr. Varkey here at UCSD found a difference in the composition of the serum between humans and the great apes. And this was a chemical that's called the sialic acid. Humans have NU5AC and the other species have NU5GC. And so this is due to a loss in a, or loss in function or a mutation in a gene called CMAH, which converts NU5AC to NU5GC. There are two major kinds of sialic acids, and these are present on our cell surfaces and secreted molecules. And as I just told you, NU5AC is in humans, 
but new 5GC is in the great apes. These are actually sugar molecules, and they differ just by this one hydroxyl group that's on the end of the sugar molecule. This is because CMAH is a hydroxylase. The sugars are located on our cell surfaces in a branch chain configuration, and the sialic acids are always at the ends of these branch chains. They've been around for a long time since the deuterostium lineage. They have biophysical properties and also how bacteria or pathogens recognize their host cells. So this is an electron micrograph that was prepared so that you could see these branch sugar chains. Sometimes they're called a glycocalyx. This is a capillary within a muscle called the soleus. And you can see this really fuzzy stuff. There's a lot of branch sugar chains on the sur surface of the endothelium. So even though it's just one biochemical change, a change in this hydroxyl group, there's a lot of sugars on all your cell surfaces. We also prepared an electron micrograph of a muscle cell or, or a muscle fiber. And you can see that these branch sugar chains also exist on muscle cells. So why did we think that this very specific biochemical change, a hydroxyl group in your sugar molecules, would have anything to do with endurance running? Well, we had some clues, and the first clue was the timing of this CMAH mutation. There have been reports using various methods, ALU sequence analysis, molecular clock, clock analysis, and they all point to this mutation occurring about two and a half to three and a half million years ago. The other clue came from studying muscular dystrophy in the laboratory, and this work was done by Dr. Martin and, and his group. So um, the MDX mouse is commonly used model to study muscular dystrophy in the lab, and it doesn't express the dystrophin gene. But it's not a perfect model because the severe symptoms, the muscle weakness, is not as great as it is in humans, and the Symptoms occur later in the lifespan of the mouse compared to when it would occur in humans. So what the Martin group did is they took the MDX mouse and they crossed it with a CMH null or knockout mouse. And then they got much worse skeletal muscle pathology and weakness. And this impaired the survival of the mice. The Martin group did a similar experiment with the alpha sarcoglycan deficient mice. They crossed it with the CMA null mice and again got worse symptoms in the heart and skeletal muscle that impaired survival. This is another type of muscular dystrophy called limb girdle muscular dystrophy. In fact, if you use this CMH null background to study many human diseases or chronic illnesses in the lab, you see a much more human-like phenotype. This is, has to do with things like wound healing, cancer progression, even atherosclerosis. So we decided to exercise test these mice on a treadmill. And this work was led by Jonathan Okerbloom, who is a graduate student in the lab. Okay, so we exercise tested them on a treadmill, but before we did this, we kept the mice under two different conditions. They were either untrained, so they just stayed in their cages in the vivarium as usual, or we put them in a cage with a running wheel so they could exercise as much as they wanted to. And you can see in the CMH null mice, that they ran for a longer time on the treadmill than the wild type or, or normal mice. And if we exercise trained the CMA null mice, they ran even further. They ran further than wild type mice that were exercise trained. 
So when you house mice with a running wheel, you can go down every day and see how fast they ran the night before, how what distance they ran. And you can see that in a wild type mice, they increase their speed and distance, but after about a week, they start to plateau. Your muscles start to adapt. They make more capillaries, they have more mitochondria, and they have more oxidative enzymes. But the CMAs, null mice, their speeds just kept increasing and they ran for longer distances. So this suggests that they had an enhanced training response or enhanced response to the in increased inactivity. We next looked to see if the change in this exercise capacity was due to what was going on in the skeletal muscle. So we fatigue tested a hind limb skeletal muscle called the gastrocnemius. So we stimulated the muscle to repeatedly contract and we measured the force that it could produce. So you can see in a normal mice that as you stimulate, you keep contracting the muscle, that the force decays, it becomes weaker. And this decay was more in the wild type or normal mice than it was in the CMA null mice. And if we call 60% our fatigue point, you can see that the normal mice fatigued after about three minutes, but the CMH null mice took seven minutes to fatigue. We took a closer look at the skeletal muscle itself and in this measurement, we measure the number of capillaries that are around each fiber, bringing oxygen to the fiber. And we did this in a soleus muscle, which is a red, more oxidative muscle, and a plantaris, which is a more glycolytic muscle. In the more oxidative soleus muscle, we saw an increased number of capillaries that were surrounding each fiber. Now, this is a very normal adaptation in your skeletal muscle to exercise training. But in this case, the mice did not exercise train at all. They just stayed in their cages. We also looked to see how well the mitochondria were respiring. And to do this experiment, we took a small bundle of fibers and we incubated them with a panel of substrates and inhibitors. So we could see the oxygen consumption at each complex that make, makes up the electron transport chain. And you can see in, the, in your diaphragm, which is the skeletal muscle and the soleus, there is a greater oxygen flux in both these skeletal muscles, suggesting that the muscle is using their oxygen more efficiently in the mitochondria. Then we took a more global approach and we measured a, a large number of metabolites in this metabolomics analysis. Then you can see trends of metabolites that go up and go down. They seem to change with CMAH null knockout mice. There is even a greater response with exercise training, and there seems to be an even more pronounced train response when you have CMH knockout and exercise training. If we run a pathway analysis on all these metabolites, the things that popped up were changes in amino acid metabolism and a tenfold enrichment in the pentose phosphate pathway. So it's possible that these changes are helping to regulate and increase reactive oxygen species load or oxidative stress that you might expect from a more metabolically active muscle type. So human skeletal muscle is a great consumer of oxygen. And in these two studies, one by Anderson and Saltine in 1985, and a later study by the Wagner group, they tried to measure the maximal oxygen consumption that a human skeletal muscle could achieve. And they did this using a special kind of exercise called the leg kick exercise. So you're focusing the exercise in one muscle group and you don't have a big contribution from your heart and your lungs. So if you increase the work that the leg is doing, 
there's a linear increase in the amount of oxygen that is taken up. And so there's a parallel increase in the amount of blood flow that's going to the muscle. But you see that these two curves, they never reach a maximum or a plateau, which suggests that if you can bring the oxygen to the muscle, it has the capacity to use it. According to Fick's law, this rate of oxygen consumption is dependent on the diffusion of oxygen and the difference in the levels of oxygen in your red blood cell and oxygen that's available to the mitochondria. So this diffusion variable is dependent on the number of red blood cells that are flowing through your capillaries and the velocity that they're going through your capillaries. The oxygen also has to go through these diffusion distances. Oxygen is bound to hemoglobin in your red blood cell, and then it has to cross these barriers. The red blood cell membrane, the red blood cells are within capillaries, so there's a capillary membrane, an interstitial space, till it reaches this network of mitochondria that are in your skeletal muscle cells. So we decided to take a deeper look at these very last steps of the oxygen transport system and see how this change in sialic acid could influence this. So the first thing is um, red blood cell dynamics. So if you change that glycocalyx on your endothelial cell surface, this could possibly influence how well the red blood cells are flowing through your capillaries. The change in hydroxyl group could change the polarity and the hydrofibricity of membranes. So this would influence the permeability of these membranes to oxygen. And as I showed you previously, there's also these branch sugar chains on the surface of the myofiber. So this could possibly influence how oxygen is taken up by the myofiber. This region here is sometimes referred to as the carrier-free region because oxygen is not bound to hemoglobin in your red blood cells and it's not bound to myoglobin in the muscle cells. It's in this free zone. Okay, so the first experiment we set up was to see how well oxygen transferred across red blood cell membranes. And to do this, we use an absorbance spectroscopy technique and took advantage of the fact that the spectra of hemoglobin and myoglobin shifts when it goes from a deoxy form to an oxy form. So when myoglobin gains oxygen molecules, the 405 signal goes up and the 447 signal goes down. So we monitor this 447 signal over time and we can get an estimate of how much oxygen transfers from hemoglobin inside the red blood cell to a deoxymyoglobin. And so far our estimates suggest that 12% more oxygen is transferred in the red blood cells that we isolated from the CMAH null mice compared to a normal mouse. We also tried to see how permeable the capillaries were. And to do this, we used a compound called sulfo-NHS biotin, and we perfused it into the vascular system of a mouse at a constant rate. We measured this in the brain and there wasn't much difference. But when we look in the skeletal muscle, you can see in the normal mice, there's a lot of signal um, in the capillaries between the fibers. So we detect this biotin with an avidin molecule that has a fluorescent tag. But in the CMH null mice, the signal is weaker. And this suggests that there is a diffuse leakage or permeability in the CMH null mice. So the endothelium might be a bit more permeable. So in this next experiment, we looked at the oxygen dependent activation in the mitochondria in Meyer fibers from the CMH null mice. And this experiment was done by Leo Noguera in the lab. And so what Leo did is he isolated 
um, a single fiber from an FDV muscle. So we used a little bit different muscle because it was it's convenient for Leo to get just one fiber out of the muscle type. And then Leo puts the fibers into these single fibers into a chamber where he can stimulate to them to contract as if they were exercising. And he bubbled different gases through the chamber. So either 5% oxygen, 1% oxygen, or almost none, 0% oxygen. Then to see if the mitochondria were activated, we measured the fluorescence of NADH. So NADH is metabolized by the electron transport chain. So if the electron transport chain or the mitochondria are working efficiently, you'll have a steady state of this NADH. But if the mitochondria start to slow down, this fluorescent signal is going to accumulate. We also measured the oxygen amounts right next to the fiber when we perfused with the different gases. So if you perfuse with 5% O2, the muscle is seeing about 40 millimeters of mercury oxygen. So there's plenty of oxygen around and the wild type and the null mice are respiring about the same. But as you start to drop the oxygen level to 10 millimeters of mercury into very low levels, 2.7 millimeters of mercury, you see the two curves start to separate. So NADH is accumulating in the wild type mice, but even at these very, very low oxygen levels, the CMAH null mice are still respiring. In the same preparation at the same time that he's measuring this NADH signal, he also measured the force that's generated. So he, he measured the fatigue response in a single fiber. And you can see the force decay in the wild type mice was about 70%. But in the CMA null mice, it was only 55%. But as you drop the oxygen levels, these two numbers become similar, about 70% decay worse. So these data suggest that mitochondria in the myofibers from the CMH null mice respire at these very low near limiting oxygen tensions. So what can we conclude from this? So I, I hope I've impressed upon you that these CMH null mice run very well on the treadmill. They have an increased aerobic endurance capacity. Our studies so far suggest that this may be due to more efficient delivery of oxygen and more efficient utilization by the skeletal muscle mitochondria. Given the time of the CMAH gene inactivation, when humans migrated over long distances and used persistence hunting, this genetic mutation may have contributed to an endurance phenotype that is uniquely human. So could this broken gene have turned our ancestors into marathon runners? Okay, and I would just like to acknowledge um, the people who worked on this study with me. This is the initial group on the first study we did. And we've been collaborating with San Diego State with Dr. Tong's lab to look at some of the um, biochemistry of the red blood cells and the myoglobin. And Dr. Jennings here at UCSD. And these are some of the folks in the lab that performed the studies. Okay, thank you very much.